Women have not been given the right information, so they've not got the right tools to make the right information for them. We haven't studied women very much because of the changes in the hormonal cycles. I think that's one of the biggest myths. I know I was certainly taught that when I was in junior high. And that makes the data messier. Period should be designated as the fifth vital sign. The day you finish menopause is the day you're dead, right? Because it's a hormone deficiency that lasts forever. 50%, like if, if, you, if you have a drug and half of the people are completely unsatisfied and it has all of these negative effects for half of the population, you know, wouldn't anybody be asking like, can we do better? Um, and it's about time we started looking at some of these issues really seriously. Welcome. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Steve here, doing my best uh, impression of a sexy, welcoming, uh, great, grateful voice here. Um, firstly, just to say thank you for tuning in. Hope you're doing well. Uh, okay, we've come to the end of our series of mashup episodes, and we really should call them mush-up episodes because Sarah is pregnant now. This is probably, we're recording this, she's about 38 weeks pregnant, and for the duration of the pregnancy, she has called her baby Mush. So in honor of darling Mush, we're going to call these episodes Mush-ups. And what better way to go out um, with a topic that possibly is one of the most important topics, I believe, uh, we as a society need to address better. And I think this is so important. An incredibly important topic that, as a man, I'm ashamed to say that more, not is not taken more serious. And even me talking about this today, I feel slightly self-conscious that I might say something wrong because I realize women's health is an area of such sensitivity and... I just feel a bit worried, so please be kind to me. Uh, we've had a number of female health specialists on our podcast, from period pains, menopause, perimenopause to fertility. And what we found amazing is how complex it all is. And even at times, how ironically, how polarizing it is. Should you take the pill? Should you not? Should you take HRT? Should you not? Should you eat differently to a man? Should you exercise in the same way a man does? The list goes on and on. There are many different opinions and the one thing we have come to the conclusion is that not all the information is made easily available to women so they can make informed choices of their own. It also makes you wonder, are we lacking the full picture? What, why does women's health bring up so many different opinions? Sarah, who produces the podcast, that's Mush's mom, uh, sent me an article from The Guardian recently which stated, medicine has always seen women first and foremost as reproductive bodies. The re reproductive organs were the greatest source of difference to men. With that conclusion, medicine persisted that the belief that all other organs and functionals would operate the same in men and women, so there was no need to study women. Wow, I feel even embarrassed just read, just kind of reading this. We recently recorded a podcast with a breath expert, uh, Patrick McKeown, amazing guy. Patrick's book called The Breathing Cure has a chapter dedicated to the understudied women, of which I want to read just a small little excerpt. Another anomaly is that when women do take part in studies, research often fails to account for the fluctuations in hormone levels that occur during the menstrual cycle. This despite the fact that the menstrual cycle is one of the most important biological rhythms that modulate this, the physiological process of a living being. Uh, pretty amazing. In our podcast with Russell Foster, this is an episode which we haven't released, so he's a circadian neuroscientist, amazing man. We asked him if there was a difference in women and men when it comes to sleep patterns. The episode is due to come out in the next week or two, but we wanted to share this quick excerpt. It's worth emphasizing that most studies, circadian studies and sleep studies, have been on basically um, male university students in the early 20s. We haven't studied women very much because of the changes in the hormonal cycles will influence the sleep-wake cycle and the body clock. And that makes the data messier. 
Um, and it's about time we started looking at some of these issues really seriously. So, for example, the changes that occur in the hormones over the menstrual cycle do unquestionably have an important impact upon the sort of quality of sleep that individuals would get. And in terms of mood as well. I mean, you know, you've got that premenstrual time when there's low progesterone, low estrogen, um, where there's a greater chance of becoming irritable and depressed. And these are real phenomena and it will impact upon the body clock and sleep wake timing. And so we don't fully understand what's going on, but we do know that there's an impact. Um, and of course, it, during the menopause and the premenopause, with all the changes in, in hormonal levels, that's known to interact with aspects of the sleep system, which will alter sleep, not least, of course, the night sweats, um, which, of, which of course disrupt sleep hugely for those individuals. What can we do about night sweats? Well, you know, you're, there's not much. I mean, it's basically get a decent fan, um, which isn't particularly helpful, but, but that's where we are with those sorts of sex differences. I guess there's no real surprise here that the female body hasn't been studied when it comes to breathing and sleep patterns. It's common knowledge that most medical studies have only been done on men and not on women. And I'm guessing this is for the reason the Gar that Guardian article that I stated earlier kind of said that scientists didn't think it was worth doing as women only differ from men in having reproductive organs. However, it's pretty clear now that the hormones have a much bigger part to play in women than in men. I'm sure it does in all humans, not to mind women and men, but women's hormones are fundamentally different to men. So why hasn't this changed? So today I'd love to bring in a journey, a journey all about hormones and women's health and why we know from the studies that have been done. We've taken excerpts from some of the female experts uh, we, we've had up to date in this podcast and broken down the potential health risks, symptoms, natural remedies and medical in interventions that could massively improve a female's life and in some cases prevent much more serious health risks. We hope that after listening to this episode, you as a woman can feel much more informed to make the right choice when it comes to hormones or to any men listening to gain a better understanding of what a female has to go through and can better support for your mother, sisters, daughters, friends and colleagues. This really is an episode for everyone. So let's start with the menopause and the controversial topic that is, should I take HRT? So anyone who is new to this HRT, hormone replacement therapy. Please bear in mind that we start this episode with the menopause and HRT, but we'll come back to it at the end of the podcast from a slightly different perspective, so bear with us. So without further ado, here we have Dr. Louise Newson, the leading menopause specialist, according to The Telegraph, which is with this pretty blunt statement. The day you finish menopause is the day you're dead, right? Because it's a hormone deficiency that lasts forever. Wow. That doesn't mm. sound that good. Well, like, it, it, it's not good, but it is good because there's, you know, there's treatment options, which we can talk about. But it's the same if you had an underactive thyroid gland or you had diabetes, they're hormone deficiencies, aren't they? So you wouldn't just be diabetic and need insulin for a certain number of years. It would be forever um, if you had type one diabetes or if you had your thyroid gland removed you would not have thyroxine forever, wouldn't you? So it's just another hormone in our body. She continues with. Yeah, see, you can't replace the missing hormones. So our hormones are reproduced from our ovaries, estrogen and testosterone. Actually, we produce three times more testosterone than estrogen. So we can't replace the missing hormones. What we can do is try and improve our future health. So diet and exercise are really important, whether someone takes HRT or not. Now, I don't know whether you've spoken to many menopausal women, but 
it's really hard for most women who are menopausal with symptoms to get off the couch and to start exercising and even think about their diet because for many of us you just feel rubbish um often people have reduced they have low mood they have reduced concentration their stamina has gone um and actually there are physical changes as well so often people find their joints become stiff their muscles sore they have loss of muscle mass so this sarcopenia so although you could say yeah let's exercise through the menopause actually you'll improve your future health by exercising but it's really hard to do because it's like trying to run a car without oil it doesn't last very long Dr. Louise is pro-HRT. A lot of you might have heard um, of or be aware of HRT and negative association with breast cancer. Dr. Louise continues with the following on this matter. So six years ago, in November 2015, with a NICE, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence Guidelines for the menopause, and in the year later, 2016, with the International Menopause Society Guidelines. Both these are really, really important documents. And they both say that for the majority of menopausal women, the benefits of taking HRT outweigh any risks, okay? So I've told you both that. What would you say, and this is in the UK, which is better than other countries, what percentage of women do you think who are menopausal take HRT? I'd say it's something like... I'd hope it's low. 30 or 40. You'd love it to get up to 50 70 or 80 or even 90. Because now, I don't know. And as I said, it's been the last month I've learned. But it seems like it's that. Why would you not take it? Yeah. So when the guidelines came out, the NICE guidance came out, it was about 10%. Six years later, it's 12%. Wow. So... <clears throat> This means the majority of women are being denied evidence-based treatment. So whether you're talking about HRT or any treatment, how can you go against national guidelines is, is one big question in my mind. But actually it's because within, when it's HRT, people have been scared away from it. And there's a lot of women out there who think it's a failure. It's like, oh, I'm giving into it if I take HRT. It's like, oh, wait till my symptoms are really bad because I'm not as bad as my friend or my mother was or my auntie is. So I just carry on and battle through it. But actually, if you spin it on its head and say, not just a female hormone deficiency, but there are health risks with it. So it's like saying to you guys, oh, you've been diagnosed with raised blood pressure. It's not causing you any symptoms. Are you going to bother with it or not? And hopefully both of you will say, yeah, because I don't want a heart attack or a stroke. I'm going to get my blood pressure down. And that's the same with menopause. You know, there are health risks. The woman who goes through the menopause is five times more likely to have a heart attack and if she has a heart attack she's more likely to die than a man so actually even if you look at reducing the risk of a heart attack by 50 percent with hrt that's enough to take hrt isn't it or one in two women over the age of 50 are thought to develop osteoporosis taking hrt reduces the risk of osteoporosis well that's quite good in my books as well you know and then look at the mental health effects, effects of in type 2 diabetes, dementia. You know, you, you look in nursing homes, it's mainly full of women who have dementia or osteoporosis or both. Um, not men, really. And the big difference between men and women is hormones. So we have to wake up to the, the importance of hormones. We've known for decades how important our hormones are. But you're right, people are scared because... 20 years ago, um, it, it, there was a study that came out, it's WHI, the Women's Health Initiative study. It was a billion dollar study, not a million, wow. a billion dollar study. And this is 20 and years by, ago. by then, so in the 90s, 80s, 90s, we used to give HRT out, like we give thyroxine out, it's a hormone deficiency, we'll give you HRT, people feel better, great. 
And then they thought, well, because it's so good, let's let's look at it, giving it to older women. And it was a really stupid study for a few reasons. Firstly, they were starting HRT to women in their mid-60s, and we usually start it from a bit younger. The type of HRT they were giving was tablet estrogen and a synthetic older style of progestogen. And it was quite a high dose. And a lot of the women in the study were obese, overweight, or they'd had and or they'd had heart attacks as well. So they were sort of not your, no one's average, but not your average menopausal woman who's in their 40s, 50s, who's not had a heart attack, not overweight, just wants to carry on with being healthy. So they gave it to them, didn't really notice much of a difference. And this is a cynical side of me, says because they weren't noticing much of a difference, they weren't proving where this billion dollars was going. So they needed to put a plug on the study. And what they did was they found that this breast cancer risk was hovering over a, a line of not much significance. It went slightly over and they went, right, let's pull the plug. Let's talk about breast cancer. Some of the investigators said, don't do that because this will be the biggest car crash to women's health. It will take decades to get over this. They said, it's too late. It's gone to the news. It's gone to the New York Herald and it's gone to the medical press. HRT causes breast cancer. What they didn't say was not all types of HRT are associated. And this increased risk is not even statistically significant. And the type of HRT is not the HRT that we give now anyway. So there was, and also, when they follow women up, they found that actually women who took HRT have a lower risk of heart disease, osteoporosis and so forth. But also women who only took estrogen had about 25% lower risk of breast cancer. Any type of HRT from this study was shown to have a lower risk of dying from breast cancer. But it was all about breast cancer and women are more than just their breasts. And breast cancer is very common whether you take HRT or not but it isn't the commonest cause of death. The commonest cause of death in women is heart disease and dementia. But also for me, it's an even bigger picture because it's about women aren't being allowed to choose. They're not allowed the right information. And, you know, I can go, if I want to, to a, a local car dealer and buy the fastest, sportiest car. And no, I won't be asking what's the evidence that this is going to be safe. Um, am I allowed to drive at 90 miles an hour in the motorway? Who's going to stop me? I'm an independent person, I can do what I like. Um, but when it's our health, we need to make choices. Like, you know, you guys choose what you're gonna eat and you do that because you wanna be healthy or you exercise or whatever. And I think it's the same for all patients actually, not just women. We have to choose the right treatment for us. And for the last 20 years, women have not been given the right information. So they've not got the right tools to make the right information for them. So I'm not here saying everybody has to be on HRT, but I'm saying that everybody needs to be allowed to make the right decision that's correct for them at that time. So who benefits from HRT? I think actually the vast majority. And um, so the only people where, you, where I'm hesitating really is where we haven't got the um, good evidence. It's women that have had an estrogen receptor positive cancer. So breast, there's breast cancers that are estrogen receptor negative, that's fine. But people think if you've got an estrogen receptor positive cancer, it's been caused by estrogen. Now, there are estrogen receptors on every single cell in a female body. So if I had um, part of my arm chopped off and you look down it, you would see estrogen receptors on the muscles, on the skin, on the blood vessels everywhere. So if I had a breast cancer, the chances are it would have estrogen receptors in it. The ones that are estrogen receptor negative actually are more aggressive cancers and all the receptor status is just gone from it. 
but it doesn't mean it's been caused by estrogen. So then there's all these treatments that block estrogen that have been shown that they might improve or some of them seem to improve mortality, but not without risks actually, because if you block estrogen in a woman, I've already said you get a risk of heart disease, osteoporosis, diabetes, dementia, but life expectancy might improve for some women. So these cancer blocking treatment or these estrogen blocking treatments have been used a long time for cancer treatment. So therefore people think, well, hormones must be really bad for these women. But if we take a step back, before these estrogen blocking treatments were available, estrogen used to be a treatment for breast cancer. So it used to actually kill some of the cancer cells because it's got very powerful anti-inflammatory properties in it, estrogen has. So we know from some studies that women who take HRT who've had breast cancer actually do a bit better. But also we haven't got good quality studies that show that women who take HRT do badly. But we see and speak to a lot of women who are told you can't have hormones ever again because you've had this estrogen receptor positive cancer. And you know, I saw someone recently in my clinic who'd been diagnosed with breast cancer 20 years ago. She's fine now, but she's menopausal. No one will give her HRT. And she's saying, well, I've got osteopenia, so thinning of the bones. My mother and granny had osteoporosis. I'm really worried I'm losing my marbles because I can't remember anything. I've, I've given up working. I really want to have a good quality of life. I've tried everything else other than HRT, but I want HRT because I want the health benefits from it. And it's my choice. And so how can you deny her her own hormones back? So, so, so that's a very long answer to your question is that I think 100% of women should have HRT if they want it. That's really important. But I think the vast majority of women would benefit from it. And that's just from data. That's not just from me saying, oh, I really like HRT because it's helped me work, you know. Uh, and I think it's about, it is a lot of it is about choice. The studies have not been great. The last 20 years, no one's done any research properly in, medicine, in menopause because they've been so scared away from it. So the type of HRT I prescribe is very different to the type of HRT that was in this scary study anyway. A common theme comes up here again. No studies have been done in the last 20 years. It's fascinating how controversial or sensitive this is. So what are the risks for those who don't take HRT? I think when you talk about risk, it's really hard, isn't it? Because when you talk about risk, there's, there's different things. Are you comparing like for like for a start? But also there's this thing about relative and absolute risk. So if I say the risk of breast cancer doubles, you'd be going away, no, not having that. Whereas if you say it goes from two per 10,000 to four per 10,000, you go, well, actually most people are fine. They're not gonna get it. So that's a different way of looking at relative compared to absolute risk. But then also if you look at it compared to other risk factors, so most women who are not, it's a generalization, but a lot of women I speak to are menopausal. They're scared of HRT because of all this um, media and sort of scaremongering. But they say, do you know what? I'm not exercising anymore because my joints are stiff and sore. I've got no motivation. So not exercising is a risk for breast cancer. I'm drinking more alcohol to numb my symptoms. It's the only way I can get through the evening and just try and improve my mood a bit. Drinking alcohol, as you say, is a small increased risk of breast cancer. And then they say, well, I've put on weight because of the metabolic changes that occur because of the menopause. But also I'm just eating rubbish. I'm comfort eating. I can't bother to cook properly. Um, I'm not sleeping well. And we know people that don't sleep well actually increase their weight as well. But I don't want HRT because of this risk of breast cancer. Well, their lifestyle is increasing their risk more. So even if they took 
the worst type of HRT with the highest risk of breast cancer that's ever been shown, but they lose weight, they exercise and they reduce their alcohol, their overall balance will be positive. So their overall risk for breast cancer will be lower than what they're doing at the moment, which is doing nothing. The real problem seems to lie in the lack of information easy available to women. So then it's quite hard to access it. So, um, you know, we, we did a survey of 3,000 women and we found that 66% have been offered or given antidepressants for the low mood associated with their menopause. So if they're not getting the right sort of support information treatment from their healthcare professional, that will, that will confirm their fears. Do you see what I mean? So, you know, we're incredibly busy um, in the clinic, but also elsewhere with some, a lot of the other work I'm doing, listening to stories of women who are refused evidence-based treatment. And, you know, in June of this year, there were some other guidelines from NICE called the Shared Decision-Making Guidance. And this is key for any disease, but especially menopause. And it is about choice. And I think, you know, with the Balance app that you probably know that I've created this free app, women can be really empowered with the right information, have the right tools to then receive the right treatment. And we found that the app users, 65% of them are getting HRT if that's what they want. So that's a big difference from 12%, but that's because they've got this confidence and knowledge which they wouldn't have had otherwise. You know, I'm sure many are wondering, is there a replacement to HRT in terms of lifestyle? It's the obvious question. It's the question that I come up with straight away. And this is how Louise answered. No, so, so there's, there's nothing that you can re replace the hormones like for like with. Um, there's loads of supplements out there. And, I, and the last 20 or so years when people have been scared of HRT, there's been some companies just making money, haven't they, from, from vulnerable menopausal women. And for a lot of us who've had symptoms, you'd, I'd pay anything to get better. You know, I couldn't get HRT from my GP because they were worried about this breast cancer risk. So I had to go elsewhere and luckily I know who to ask, but I would have paid thousands just to keep my marriage and my job, you know. But I think if there's anything that's got menopause on the label that's a supplement, don't buy it because it's just marketing. There are things that are important. Vitamin D we should all be taking, whether we're menopausal or not. Some people choose to take things like a good quality fish oil. Magnesium can be good. Probiotics, as you know, can be good. But that's that's more about future health rather than specifically for the menopause. There's very few things that really help symptoms. There's things like sage might help hot flushes, but lifestyle changes can. Some foods you can help. But because the menopause is more than just symptoms, we shouldn't be looking at a treatment just for symptoms we should be looking at a treatment that helps our future health. And so when we look at diet or exercise or supplements, it's not just here and now, it's investing for our future, if that makes sense. So how do you know if you're in the menopause or you're perimenopause and how does a doctor detect it when there's no simple test like a blood test? But with a perimenopause, hormone levels decline, but they don't just gradually decline. They're a bit yo-yo-y. So sometimes people will feel great and other times they'll feel bad. And often um, symptoms are worse just before a period because that's when naturally hormones decline. Um, so they can be a bit all up and down and that can be quite difficult. And, and symptoms really vary. So everyone knows about the flushes and sweats, but some of the, the sort of vaguer symptoms, if you like, is memory problems, fatigue, muscle and joint pains. You know, you think, oh, is it because I'm getting a bit older or is it my hormones? And, and that's really difficult to monitor. And, you know, I missed my own symptoms for a few months and I'm, I was developing my website, which is the balance-menopause.com website. And I was writing content about reduced motivation, poor sleep and 
all these symptoms that I was getting, but I thought I was getting them because I was working too hard. Um, what I really needed was the app to tell me actually, come on, this is really obvious, all these symptoms have come. So if there's no trigger for those symptoms, then you really should be thinking, is it my hormones? And you know, in an ideal world, you know, when we go and see a doctor, usually we get our blood pressure done, don't we? And they often ask us for a sample of our wee. What we should be doing for all women is saying, when was your last period? Do you think you could be perimenopausal or menopausal? Download the app, give me your health report. I'm going to put this in your notes because do you know what? I wish I'd done it for the last 30 years being a doctor because I didn't. And I've missed so many women because I've taken their symptoms in isolation. I haven't looked at the bigger picture because I didn't have any menopausal training. No one taught me. I just would treat what came through the door rather than looking at all of this. So why is the information on HRT so negative? Is there an agenda behind this? I think about this a lot. So firstly, just to be really out there, I do no paid work with any pharmaceutical company. So I do not have any backhanded. I have no hidden interests. I think that's really important that people know. Um, I think it's because of all this misinformation that's being fueled to us. And, you know, HRT also used to be made from pregnant horses' urine. Like, would you really want to be taking that? So there's this whole thing is like, oh, really? Whereas actually all the HRT we prescribe is derived from yam plants. So I don't think that's a problem. Um, I think it's because it's really hard to change perceptions. But the other thing is, is that, you know, if you look at the amount of money that breast cancer charities have, it's huge, isn't it? So if you think of breast cancer, and I'm not undermining breast cancer at all, don't get me wrong here, it's really important, but it's not the only disease women get. And actually, a lot of women die with breast cancer, not from breast cancer. So even if a woman's had breast cancer, the commonest cause of death for women who've had breast cancer is heart disease and dementia the same as other women, because the prognosis is so much better from breast cancer. So that's where we have to be looking at this bigger picture. So, but people have gone so overboard with the risks of HRT, even with the NHS website, it's telling me about the risks. It's not even telling me that it reduces my risk of a heart attack. Like, why isn't it? Why is it always about risk? Why is it about putting women down? And I find, I mean, it's so much of a bigger picture about women and um, discrimination. And, you know, I've got nothing against men at all. I love my husband dearly, but, you know, you can buy Viagra over the counter. And Viagra came out when I was at medical school in the sort of 80s, 90s. So it's fast track. Not only is it being, literally it was a private prescription and then they said we could prescribe it and now we can buy it over the counter. Now there are more risks of Viagra than there are with our own hormones. Yet women aren't even allowed their own hormones. Like, what is that about? Okay, this is pretty incredible to think that Viagra, there's more health risks in it than there is HRT because anyone who takes Viagra will kind of just see it as this perfect drug. There's only positive bits to be gained, but phenomenal to hear that there's, there's as much danger, there's more danger with Viagra than HRT. Like, it doesn't make sense. Why would it be so hard on one form of seemingly life-changing medicine? I said life-changing, not saving, versus another. We finish here with Dr. Louise on why there are no health checks for women to detect menopause. You know, 40 to 50% of NHS employees are menopausal women. I've already said a lot of women are leaving the workplace. So, you know, we need to look after the NHS, which is such a big employer. 
And um, I said to her, well, why can't, when every woman is called for a mammogram, their first mammogram around the age of 50, can't we just have a fact sheet about the menopause there so to improve awareness? And then she said, no, that would cost too much money. And I said, well, I'll design it. I don't understand because you're sending something out already. And then what about when everyone has a cervical smear? Because then um, when they have cervical screening, you can just have information there right from the get-go. So before, hopefully, a lot of them will experience symptoms. Or oh, logistically, that would be too difficult. So um, it, it, it's about trying to capture people when they come. And, you know, I've been pregnant three times. I had so much intervention. It was great by, you know, midwives, by health visitors, going to the hospital, loads and loads of information, which at the time was great. But, you know, you're only pregnant nine months and then you carry on. This is happening, you know, most women will be menopausal for at least three decades, sometimes a lot more, but we're not having any health check. We have a health check over in England, which is um, like a well woman check at the age of 40 odd, but no one talks about hormones. So I don't, I actually don't know why it's, why it hasn't. And I think it's because there's not a blood test. I think if there was a test, it would be easier. But actually, a lot of the work I'm doing is thinking, well, let's just empower women. You know, women are not stupid, but we need to be given the right information. But you're right. In, in Europe and, and some of the American countries, we call HRT MHT, so menopausal hormonal treatment or menopausal hormonal therapy. Um, and that gives it because actually when you have it in the perimenopause, it's not replacement. You're not replacing anything. You're just topping up what's missing. So you're totally it needs a whole new rebranding. What I like most about Dr. Louise's approach is that she wants to give women the choice. She wants to educate people and ideally medical professionals so they're up to date on the latest information and then let people make their own informed decision. Knowing that doctors can sometimes be ill-informed doesn't give you much confidence, does it? You'd like to think you can just go to your doctor and be told all options from, from a non-biased approach, but it looks like we all need to take things more into our own hands in terms of health. Next up, we have Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. She's amazing. A certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner. Uh, I wonder how many of us were brought up to think that getting pregnant was super easy. I know as a man, like it was always something you were afraid of. You could get, oh my God, if I, if we even joked. I remember we were in New York and we were staying in some fancy university i think it was like whatever that one in new york is called a fancy one anyway and we slept on these mattresses and there was no sheets on them and i remember the next day uh you and you and i'm sorry pointing you out you and said to one of the girls who was with us geez i hope you were careful on those sheets you could have got pregnant even just sleeping on them because there's this idea that like you know it was in the air if you rubbed off a man the wrong way you get pregnant but in reality um it's obviously not that easier um anyway i'm going off on a tangent but still, the knock-on effect of this kind of idea that you can get pregnant so easy surely has a negative impact on us as a society. I think that's one of the biggest myths. I know I was certainly taught that when I was in junior high. That was, you know, we were told that you could get pregnant every single day of your cycle. There were no safe days, all those kinds of things. And I mean, ultimately, then if your body's basically like a ticking pregnancy time mom, then the only solution is to go on a a contraceptive option that gives you protection 100% of the time. But when we look at what the science actually tells us about the menstrual cycle, is that there's only a short window of fertility. So from a scientific perspective, there are six days of the menstrual cycle where pregnancy is possible. So, you know, if I take you through the menstrual cycle, you have um, your period, not your period, I suppose my period, um, but you have the period that lasts anywhere from about three to seven days. And then at, after the period, finishes, you start to 
um, in a healthy typical cycle move towards ovulation. And so for any of the women listening, you know, if you've ever noticed a little bit of um, cervical fluid, so I mean, I'm, I talk about this stuff all the time, so I'm not sure how comfortable you guys are talking. I was really enjoying reading about cervical um, mucus. mucus and learning all about that. And I was even Googling, fluid. what is a cervix again? And just, you know, touching up on all this stuff. Yeah, well, I know my husband's really uh, obviously knowledgeable because of me, but he's always like, I don't like the word mucus. So, you know, um, but anyway, so as you approach then ovulation, um, many women will notice some creamy white hand lotion. So it's that type of fluid or clear, stretchy, like raw egg whites. And when you're going to the bath, like, you know, when you're going to the bathroom and you're wiping, often a, a quite a slippery sensation is accompanying this fluid. So, you know, one of the unfortunate things about our world is that we're not taught about these things. So a lot of women end up going to their doctors thinking that they have a yeast infection or something uh, that's unusual happening because they're seeing this fluid, not really knowing that it's actually a perfectly normal and healthy part of the menstrual cycle. So the reason why that fluid is important is because when we're producing it, that's called our fertile window. And during that time, sperm can actually survive for up to five days in the reproductive tract. So I know a lot of women have heard like, okay, sperm can live in my body, but they kind of think it's all the time, but it's actually during this fertile window. So um, once you ovulate, that cervical fluid typically dries up and goes away. And then your period would come about 12 to 14 days later. And so, you know, just by me taking you through that quick illustration, What's interesting about it is that there are periods of the cycle where pregnancy is not possible. I think that's um, something that's really important. I think a lot of couples figure that out when they come off their contraceptive and pregnancy doesn't happen right away. They kind of have to, you know, okay, well, I, I thought I would just get pregnant. So I have to kind of look into this more. So that's certainly one of the factors. So in terms of uh, when you're ready to conceive, I think there's a lot of things to consider. Uh, one of the things that I do think is important to say, and I've already uh, touched on a little bit, is that, you know, if you're using hormonal contraceptives to avoid pregnancy, um, you know, if you're in the position where, let's say, you're in a relationship and you're kind of planning ahead to conceive, I think it is a good idea to start thinking about your choice of birth control method to give yourself a little buffer period, you know, six to 12 months at least, um, between coming off of your contraceptive method and trying to conceive. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It takes the body a little bit of time for the hormones to normalize. Um, what the research tells us it, is it, it can take anywhere from nine to 12 menstrual cycles before everything fully normalizes in terms of overall cycle length, ovulation, cervical fluid. Um, the second half of the menstrual cycle, the luteal phase has to be a certain length. So there's a lot of things that we don't really think about or know about when we're trying to conceive because we've always been told that you can just get pregnant any day of the cycle. Lisa continues with... The menstrual cycle is always 28 days. We're told that ovulation always happens on day 14. And so uh, we have a lot of women having sex on day 14, regardless of what's actually happening in their body. So um, the cycle ranges, a healthy cycle ranges anywhere from about 24 to 35 days. And so that means ovulation could happen as early as day 10, maybe even a little earlier, depending on if you're, if you're having a really short cycle or as late as day 24. And they, then, I mean, that's a healthy range. So there's plenty of women with cycles that are outside of the healthy range that ovulate way later than that. So I think um, just from that standpoint alone, it's uh, for, especially for people for whom this is the first time they're hearing this information, it really boggles the mind because um, we're just not taught about this stuff. We certainly weren't taught any of this in school and from our parents or even speaking to female friends, they didn't seem to be taught this either. You know, moving on from fertility, we talk birth control and the side effects. 
I think that most common, obviously, methods of contraception that we're familiar with are condoms and then hormonal methods or the IUD, hormonal or non-hormonal. And the way that I often describe it is that these methods, the, the methods intended for women, in a way, they make your body what I call resistant to sperm. You know, if you're taking a pill and it stops you from ovulating and it thins your uterine lining um, and it, you know, prevents that conception possibility, then it makes your body essentially resistant to sperm. And I think things have changed quite a bit because I remember when I was a teenager and I was contemplating contraception, um, I actually thought condoms were like a, a viable option. <laughs> so um, when I was a teenager and I was making that decision, I had been on the pill as a teenager for period pain, so not contraception. And I did the opposite thing of <laughs> I think what most people do because I went off um, the pill for a variety of reasons. I had concerns about the fact that my periods were so painful and I um, kind of wanted to figure out why that was, I, if that makes sense. Like I would go be on the pill and the, the pain would be, you know, not as bad and I'd come off of it and it would be the same as it was before. So I had the sense that it wasn't fixing it. Um, but long story short, I mean, when I decided to come off the pill, I was like, okay, well, condoms are 98% effective. So <laughs> I didn't have any concerns about that, but I feel like um, the younger generation has really been taught that hormonal methods are basically the only viable option. And they're basically being told, it seems, that if you're not on a hormonal method, that it's just a matter of time before you conceive. I feel like they're not even being told that condoms <laughs> work or how to use them correctly, which is uh, crazy. So I think the first thing about fertility awareness-based methods, because I think that's also helpful. There's no one fertility awareness method, so to speak, that everybody agrees on. Uh, basically, fertility awareness as a concept, it means to understand what's happening in your body. So um, just to, as a concept, it means to understand that you're not fertile all the time, to understand that there is a window of fertility in your cycle and to be able to identify when that is. So I think that's kind of the overarching. And then in terms of the method, in terms of using it as a birth control method, there are a number of different ways to do that. So there are some methods that utilize cervical fluid only. So you're literally monitoring that sign alone. The method that I teach is a combination uh, the symptothermal method, where you're using cervical fluid, the basal body temperature, the cervical position. Um, and so you're identifying the fertile window and you're adding on a buffer period onto that by using and following the rules to identify when in your cycle you can conceive and when you can't. And I think one of the important things when talking about fertility awareness-based methods, and it might seem strange coming from me, given that this is what I do, I don't think that they're for everybody and I don't think even the women who use it, it may not be the right thing for them at every point of their lives. Uh, because ultimately it is a different kind of method. When you're using fertility awareness uh, based methods, you're not making your body resistant to sperm. So you can get pregnant, you know, if you don't understand the rules and if you have sex on a um, unprotected sex on a fertile day. So I think that that's really important as well. And the interesting thing about fertility awareness based methods is that there's um, no one that's forcing anyone to use them. Um, women choose these methods for a variety of reasons. So a lot of my clients, unfortunately, have had negative experiences with hormonal birth control. Uh, they've had bad side effects. They've tried all these different kinds, brands, you know, it, it didn't work for them. Um, and there's other women who are just really health conscious and they're doing all these things, they're eating organic food and they're doing all this, like they're exercising and all this stuff. And then they realize like I'm taking synthetic hormones every day and it doesn't align. <laughs> so, you know, there's lots of different reasons why women choose this. And I think that it's, it's important from my perspective just to be out there as an option 
And I think for anyone who this is new information, you've never heard about it before, you're thinking this chick's talking about the rhythm method, <laughs> you know, it doesn't work, it's not effective, all that kind of stuff. What's interesting is that fertility, modern fertility awareness-based methods are evidence-based, there is peer-reviewed science, and when used correctly, they're up to 99.4% effective. Typical use does vary, and especially depending on the method that you're using. Because as I mentioned, there's a lot of different methods. But I think the takeaway is that for women who really want to do this and who are looking for a non-hormonal option, there is one and you can be effective using it as long as you take the time to learn it. Okay, I think this is so important. Like speaking to female friends, I know many were aware that there were potential side effects when taking the pill. You know, but they all say they were encouraged to go on it to prevent pregnancy or if they had any form of pain, acne, or heavy, heavy bleeding. You know, learning the full detailed spectrum of the side effects from your GP or doctor seems to be really rare. Like even, you know, here with Sarah, she said she knew some of it but didn't know the other. And yet, according to Lisa, the state of your period, its regular pain and quantity and its flow is a high indicator of your health as a woman. So this is something as a society we need to know more about this. I think Lisa calls it the fifth vital sign. The menstrual cycle is a vital sign. Um, the most common vital signs would be like your heart rate, your body temperature, respiratory rate. And I think anyone who's listening, you know, if you go to the doctor and they take your blood pressure and it's too high, I mean, not only does it tell the doctor that something's wrong, but high blood pressure in particular is linked to specific challenges. So it would give the doctor a good starting point to figure out what's wrong with you and help you know, help the doctor know how to, how to, you know, start working on improving that. So the menstrual cycle can be used in much the same way. So, you know, one of the examples is if you understand what normal healthy mucus patterns look like and understand that at a certain point of your cycle, as you approach ovulation, that's when you're supposed to see mucus, but you're not supposed to see discharge every single day. Then if you do notice a shift and a change to seeing some sort of discharge every single day, then that can be a sign of an infection. And so from a very basic level, understanding your cycle can help with things like that. But then, you know, on the flip side, to take it a little step further, you know, as a woman of reproductive age, um, having a healthy menstrual cycle is a normal part of how the body works. Um, and this is why we see so many issues that are seemingly unrelated when women are taking contraception, because we're kind of sold this idea that the, um, that the reproductive system is kind of separate from ourselves. So, oh, if you don't want to get pregnant, just take the pill and it'll just shut down your ovulation. And you kind of think like, and it won't have any effect on any other part of my life because obviously my uterus is just somehow separate to my body. But when you see that, you know, many women who take contraceptives do have things like depression, low libido, it interferes with how their body is um, uh, processing and methylating different vitamins and nutrients causing, you know, a slew of deficiencies in certain areas and having all these effects on sexual function then you have to kind of think about that, you know? Um, so I'm trying to think of, I, I shared one example of um, if like hypothalamic amenorrhea, like when someone stops menstruating altogether, I think we're most familiar with that in the concept of sport. Yeah, so I was, kind of I think was thinking the, more to professional athletes, like you often hear that they lose their periods or whatever, when they're really, you know, training and super lean and whatnot. Well, and you kind of like, I feel like the way that it's presented is that it's kind of like to be expected, like it's kind of normal. <laughs> and so I feel like the osteoporosis example makes it clear that it's not normal because women who lose their periods for six months or more are at a lifetime higher risk of developing osteoporosis because what's really happening is that you're not getting enough 
overall, like you have an energy deficit. So it's either you're exercising more than what you're consuming or you're under consuming. And so your body is starving basically. And um, then our bodies are highly intelligent. So they respond by not putting additional stress. Cause obviously if you, if you're not even consuming enough energy to support your own body, um, getting pregnant and supporting a, a baby wouldn't be ideal. So your body kind of takes that off the table. Um, and you know, there's other examples of that. I think polycystic ovary syndrome is an interesting example as well. Um, so PCOS, um, the way that it shows up in the menstrual cycle are these long irregular cycles. So having a really delayed ovulation. And so sometimes women will have cycles ranging from 40 days to 50 days to 60 days. And PCOS is characterized by inflammation. It's characterized by glucose uh, resistance or glucose intolerance and insulin resistance. And uh, women who have PCOS are much more likely to develop type 2 diabetes down the road. So many consider it to be a metabolic condition. So having a cycle that like... I kind of mentioned that the regular cycle falls somewhere between 24 to 35 days with an average of about 29 days. So that means that even if your cycle is just way off base, that in and of itself is a sign of potentially an underlying health issue. And we don't often think of our menstrual cycles like that because as a woman too, there's a lot of negative um, just information and energy around the menstrual cycle we're kind of told, well, it's normal for it to be painful and, oh, it's, you know, dragon time around that mm -hmm. month. And so we kind of have this expectation for the period to just be this horrible thing, to be painful, to be irritable, all that kind of stuff. And so um, when we have issues with it and the doctor suggests that we go on the pill to quote regulate it or take care of it, or even get rid of it altogether, we're, you know, I think a lot of women are often happy about that because it's like, well, pff, this period thing is so annoying and it's, um, it's messy, it's this, it's that, all these negative connotations. And we never really get the opportunity to understand how important it is and, and why it's linked to our overall health. It's fascinating how HRT is seemingly not promoted in the medical industry, whereas the pill is pushed out like a vitamin C supplement. Even as a man, like I just saw the pill as like something you just go out and you take and there's no side effects. And it's just like, oh, you just take it to stop pregnancy. You know, it's like a condom. It's the equivalent of a condom. But in reality, like you're messing with a female's hormone cycle. Of course, there's going to be side effects. Lisa goes on to further indicate it's nearly frowned upon to be anti-pill. And here is why. Uh, it's a it's an interesting, tricky subject because, as you had said, you know the the pill is linked to women's lib and this whole sexual revolution. Thing. And women lib, you mean women's libido, liberation? Oh, liberation! <laughs> liberation. Oh, sorry, I was thinking libido. <laughs> sorry. I put I my foot like in it again. <laughs> but it is linked to women's libido as well. <laughs> well, but not in the way we would want. But but yes. Um, so I think that it makes it kind of tricky. I think it's a little easier in today's day and age than maybe even 10, 15 years ago to talk about it. Um, Cause you know, I feel like I used to get, people used to pounce on me a little bit more. I'm like, she's anti-pill, she's anti-feminist, that kind of thing. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's really important not to be scared to talk about it. Even if we look at the research on side effects in general in the pill. Um, there was one study that I looked at that particularly irritated me um, where they, they, <laughs> I think that the title of the study was something about, um, they were trying to understand the characteristics of women who complained about contraceptives, which is already irritating me because I'm like, well, why are you doing that? Like you're trying to find out who complains and what kind of people they are. And what the study found was that about 
of the women who took the contraceptives had side effects. And they, these were um, a variety of side effects, including sexual side effects. So low libido, um, reduced sensation, reduced ability to orgasm. Um, I mean, I think some of the most common side effects include depression and low libido. And kind of one of the running jokes about hormonal contraceptives is that it works because it makes you not want to have sex anymore. But everybody does not have... <laughs> Good joke. <laughs> it's like not even a funny joke, right? But it's no. unfortunately true. But um, but the important thing, though, is that there are women listening right now who are like, well, I've been using the pill for a long time and I haven't had a side effects. So, you know, in that particular study, it was 50%. So there are women who use contraceptives who don't have as overt kind of negative side effects. I think that's important to point out. Um, and what happened is, the, what was interesting about the conclusion that the researchers drew was that the researchers concluded that um, it's difficult for physicians to recommend the most effective methods without unduly discouraging the women to use it if they disclose the side effects. Wow. So they were more concerned about how hard it is for the doctors to <laughs> um, find a balance between telling women the truth about the side effects and you know, so. promoting these methods and nowhere in that particular step, like 50%, like if, if you, if you have a drug and half of the people are completely unsatisfied and it has all of these negative effects for half of the population, you know, wouldn't anybody be asking like, can we do better? Could we maybe improve it? Could we do a formulation that's not just designed to be different enough so that we can have the patent, but that's actually designed to be better, you know, in terms of the experience that women are having. I think the, the part of the conversation that is often missing with contraceptives is that every, everyone who takes them doesn't have a good experience. You know, I've, I've worked with, and you could, anyone could argue that I see a different part of the population because I see often the part of the population who's unsatisfied, who didn't have a good experience, you know, but there are women out there who have had really negative experiences. You know, I have this kind of ongoing pill series on my podcast um, and I also interview clients and things like that on my show. And so I've, I, I mean, I'm just a small sample size in terms of the side effects women experience, they range from things that we would consider not that serious, you know, things like vaginal dryness and the low libido thing. I think a lot of people would probably pass off, um, to depression and anxiety, um, and what that can look like to, for some women are panic attacks. And it doesn't always happen right away. So some women start taking their contraceptive and then, you know, within a couple of days, <laughs> they kind of start having these um, reactions. Other, I've spoken to women who don't start having reactions until they've been taking the contraceptive for years. So two, three, four or five years in, they start having panic attacks. Um, wow. I have spoken to a couple of women who've had strokes. Now, these are obviously the more um, rare extreme. and extreme side effects. Uh, but there is a study that I was looking at that said mm -hmm. that, you know, based on just, you know, all the women in the States who are using the pill, um, every year, about three to 400 women die of strokes in the U S alone. And in the, 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 the study, you know, the researcher compared that to like, if a jumbo jet crashed every year, um, so, I mean, not to be like a total Debbie Downer, right, to talk about that, but it's real. There are women who have strokes and blood clots and pulmonary, pulmonary embolisms and some really serious, severe side effects, even though they're more rare 
they do happen. So, you know, to kind of bring it together, I think that's the other side of the story. Um, a lot of women have negative experiences with it. And unfortunately, many of these women, when they have their negative experience, even if it's like they go on the pill, it's a common thing, actually, women go on the pill and they start having yeast infections. And then they go to their doctor and their doctor gives them like an antifungal and then they get bacterial vaginosis. And then they have this thing like over and over again until they come off the pill or until it subsides. There's a lot of stuff that happens. And so the problem is that when these women are not presented with any other alternative other than contraceptives, many of them feel trapped because they, they, they know that this thing isn't, their body isn't reacting well to it, but they feel like they have no other option. There's a 50-50 chance you'll have a bad experience on the pill and some of the side effects are awful. So are these side effects long lasting? But the good news is that in the research, there's no information that I've come across that would indicate that these effects are permanent. So the three main modes of action for most contraceptives, hormonal contraceptives, um, most, not all. So um, most contraceptives do suppress ovulation. Um, so they prevent that from happening by interfering with the normal dialogue that's going on between the hypothalamus, pituitary um, and ovaries. And, you know, then the second mode of action would be thinning of the endometrial lining. So most hormonal contraceptives cause that, you know, inner uterine lining to be very, very thin. So even if something were to happen, the egg wouldn't really have anywhere to implant. And then also um, a third mode of action is to actually cause that cervix to be filled with a thick mucus plug to be a barrier to sperm. Um, so that's what's happening. But when, um, when a woman comes off the contraception, you know, that if that doesn't linger forever. One of the, the challenges though, and I think this is the important thing that I try to come uh, put across. There's no evidence really that I've seen that would indicate that these effects are permanent. But what does happen is there is this, you know, temporary transition period that women go through. So there was one study that I was looking at where they had um, the participants on a whole, you know, different contraceptive methods. So there was the group not on hormones. They had been using condoms. There was a group on the, the pill, which is a combined synthetic estrogen, progestin, contraceptive. Um, so that's the most common, like that's the same thing that's in like the patch and the ring and all that kind of stuff. And they had, um, you know, women using the ID. And so they, they had these, and then also the shots. So the women who were using condoms, so they weren't using hormonal methods, the average time to conception was four months. The women who were using the, the pill, who had come off of it, the average time to conception was eight months. And then the women who were using the shot, the shot has the, the longest transition period. So it was 18 months. Um, and I think this is the point that I try to make, you know, so picture this from a typical woman's perspective. I mean, most of us are trying to not get pregnant while we're doing our school and setting up our lives, um, stabilizing ourselves, getting our jobs together. And so many of us are waiting, you know, until we're in our late twenties, thirties, sometimes even late thirties to conceive. We've been actively avoiding pregnancy for sometimes decades, terrified of pregnancy the whole time. And so when you come off the pill, especially after a lifetime of being told we can conceive, you know, on the warm bus seat, um, <laughs> then you expect to get pregnant right away. And you might be fine that first cycle that you've tried and you don't get pregnant, but even by the second or third 
cycle, like the second or third time you get your period and you're not pregnant, I think a lot of women start freaking out because we've been told that we could just get pregnant so easily. Um, so the fact that it could take twice as long when you come off the pill, I think for a lot of people, we don't really consider what that could really mean. Um, and I think the bigger problem isn't that the pill causes fertility issues, but you know, if a woman does have issues with her cycle, so we kind of touched on that. Let's say she's got like long, irregular cycle. So she's getting her period every 60 days. If she goes on the pill, most likely what happens is she gets a bleed every 30 days, which is not the same as her period. But when she comes off the pill, she didn't fix whatever that problem was. You know, if she was getting her period every 60 days, it's a sign of an underlying problem. So if she was on the pill and she comes off of it, you know, that problem didn't get fixed. So the pill can actually mask problems. So there are people who come off the pill and can't get pregnant. It's not that the pill caused them not to be able to get pregnant, but if they had an underlying issue, they basically shut off that vital sign. So they wouldn't really know the true status of that problem. We now move on to the topic of period pains and the pill. In terms of period pain, I think the first thing that needs to be said is that although it's very, very common for women to experience pain, that doesn't make it normal or healthy. There's a lot of things that are common that are not necessarily healthy. So unfortunately, though, as women, we've been taught that that's just how periods are. And to the point where I have to have a specific question on my intakes to really bring that out, because, you know, it's something that so many women deal with and struggle with that we don't even necessarily even bring it up when we're seeking help for other medical or other issues. Um, so, you know, I suffered from really painful periods for since my first one, actually, that was why I, I went on the pill when I was in my teens. Um, so I can certainly uh, relate and I have a lot of empathy because I've been on the floor. And just as a personal aside, when I was in my teens and early 20s and I would have really painful periods, um, they were just, it was completely out of hand. Like I remember being on the floor and thinking to myself, like, this is like labor without a baby being really mad. And then I went on to have, you know, two children vaginally. And my personal experience was that the first stages of labor were easier to manage than my period pain because the labor comes in waves, at least mine did. So you'd have these surges of contractions, but it wouldn't just last all day. <laughs> um, so anyways, I just want to validate that because um, there's still an issue even to this day of women going to seeking uh, seek support from health professionals because their periods are so painful and basically they're being told like, oh, it can't possibly be that bad. Um, and, and yes, it can. Um, so in terms of, I think this is one of the biggest challenges, especially with the pill, because um, if I'm going to get like social media hate, <laughs> hate comments, it's going to be from women who had painful periods and the pill was the only thing that helped them. So the first thing is that every woman with painful periods, like some women, the pill doesn't actually help them. So I feel like that's something that should be said. <laughs> um, some women go on the pill and the pill doesn't totally get rid of all their pain. Um, but I think many women find some relief. So to your point about the vital sign aspect, yes, we should be looking at pain as a problem. And I feel like outside of childbirth, when would we actually think that pain is okay? Like imagine as, as you guys imagine as two men, if you had severe pain in your penis to the point that you couldn't walk and you needed to lie down for like three, two, two to three days of a, every month, 
Like, do you think society would be like, yeah, that, <laughs> that's totally normal. It's totally okay. And I feel like everyone can attest to that, but like, that's how bad it is for, for women. So, um, you know, to pull it back to like what it could mean in terms of health, health wise, um, you know, not all women that have moderate to severe pain have endometriosis, for example, but a high percentage of them do. So period pain can be a sign of endometriosis, which is a serious debilitating condition that can cause fertility challenges. Um, uh, it's characterized by inflammation and, and sometimes forms different lesions, you know, in the body and can even be outside of the reproductive uh, organs. So one of the challenges, uh, you know, and, and I think I should put out there, I'm anti-pain. So I'm not judging anybody in terms of how they're going to deal with that pain. Um, I just have some questions because I myself had pain. So if you have such severe periods that you need to be on the pill, what happens if one day you want to have a baby? You know, eventually that would mean that you, you have to come off of it. And how are you going to deal with that, the, that pain then? So in some ways, it's, it's really important for us to find ways to be able to manage that pain. Um, but I think the pill could potentially be used as a temporary solution for you to manage while you may also be looking at um, working with a functional practitioner to address some of that inflammation and some of those root underlying causes of that pain to try to get you to the point where you can wean yourself off of that and, and manage it in other ways. Um, and then for women who, uh, one of the challenges I think is that if, if you have this pain and you're put on the pill, but not also investigated, then uh, an important diagnosis could be missed. And so I'll just end with the stat, you know, there's, there was a study that was done and, you know, it, it takes on average for a woman with endometriosis, anywhere from eight to 12 years to get a diagnosis. Oh my God. That you said years, not months. Years. Yeah. I thought you were going to say like yeah. eight cycles and I was like, no. oh, wow, that's awful. Years. And that's that means these women are going to these doctors and telling them like my pain, it's really bad. Like it can't work, can't function. And they're like, okay, go on the pill. Like, okay, take naproxen. Okay. And they're, and yes, like this is, we need the, the things to manage so we can live our lives, but we also need to be investigated. Just like the menopause and HRT, people seem to be scared to really talk about the pill and its negative effects openly. Like it's almost as a society, you can't talk about this. The pill is just good and that's it. There's only one side to it. So where does this leave us in a society again when you can't see the full spectrum of things? We've talked in length about the side effects and the impacts the menopause, period pains, HRT and the pill can have on the female body. But what about lifestyle changes? Does everyone feel the same? Is there a way that the pill and HRT can coexist with lifestyle changes to give these women who are struggling any additional help? This leaves us with the wonderful Dr. Neetu Bajekal, MD, a senior consultant obstetrician and gynecologist in the UK with over 35 years of clinical experience in women's health. Her special interests include lifestyle medicine, PCOS, endometriosis, period pain, menopause, pre-cancer, complex vulvar problems and medical educations. And not only is she an incredible academic practitioner of medicine, she's just a badass human being who you're like, Neetu, you are just so cool. She's just a wonderful role model and someone that we love hanging out with. Uh, so here we have Neetu on lifestyle and women's health. You see, there is no aspect of general health and no aspect of reproductive health or women's health that is not influenced by lifestyle. 
not a single medical condition. So whether it is, you know, endometriosis, whether it's polycystic ovary syndrome, whether it's fibroids, these are all estrogen dependent conditions, whether it is breast cancer, ovarian cancer, womb cancer, for men, prostate cancer, bowel cancer, for both sexes. So basically there's no aspect that will not benefit. It's not that I don't need to do surgery. It's not that if I, I don't need to do a cesarean section for somebody whose baby is not going to be able to be born vaginally. That's not the point. The point is they can be helped during pregnancy, for example, of avoiding pregnancy-induced diabetes. They can be helped with you know, reducing their pain symptoms of endometriosis or painful periods. They can be helped with regards to their acne and their excess hair growth when it comes to polycystic ovary syndrome if they don't want to go on the pill, if they're trying for a pregnancy. So there are so many aspects. There's no aspect that doesn't get helped. But I think what has really made a difference is that I have... I have, a credib I have credibility as an obstetrician and gynecologist for, with 35 years of experience. So, and people know that I have been doing this for a long time and that when I'm recommending these things is because I have looked into the science. I have actually done my examinations in lifestyle medicine. And I'm not saying that you have to do one or the other. You know, they complement each other. They walk side by side, you know, it's not you don't have to choose lifestyle over surgery. If you need, happen to need surgery, if you've got cancer and you've got a big growth, say, in your breast, it needs to be removed. That is the you know, bottom line. You need to have chemotherapy. You may need to have chemotherapy. But you will still do very, very well, first of all, by trying to reduce your risk by eating the right foods from even when you're in your mother's stomach and your mother's eating the right foods. So, you know, genetics plays a role. Epigenetics plays a role. But even later on, it's never too late. It's never too early to eat the right foods, to live the right lifestyle. So once you understand that, that it doesn't matter, there is no shame in taking medications. There is no shame in having surgery. But if you can avoid it, hey, why not? Love this. Like, absolutely so vital. Lifestyle and medicine complement each other. They can coexist together. I suppose we just need to fully understand and respect how both need to work together to get the best results. Something Dr. Louise also alluded to. Moving on with Nita, we ask, why do women get painful periods? So painful periods, basically, if you think about it, um, they, they're divided into two types. One, which is known as primary dysmenorrhea. Doctors love complicated words, but basically <laughs> it's where you don't have a cause. Uh, you know, you don't have endometriosis, for example, causing the painful periods, or you don't have big fibroids that are pressing in the wrong place and causing pain. So these are usually, um, you know, people who menstruate, they have pain starting a day before or on the day of the period, they have cramps. And this is because, you know, the lining of the womb sheds every month. The reason it sheds every month uh, tends to be because you've released an egg a couple of weeks before, the body is expecting to uh, have a pregnancy, you know, egg meets sperm and it's all lovely. And then it settles down in the uterus and a pregnancy is supposed to happen. Now, when that doesn't happen, the lining gets shed and that's a period when the lining gets shed and the, the lining comes away there is blood but there is also cells and mucus and debris and all that and so it releases some chemicals called prostaglandins and these prostaglandins can cause nausea in some 
can cause vomiting in some, can cause diarrhea for others, can cause constipation in some, it can cause pain in others, and it can cause heavy bleeding in others. And so those prostaglandins really need to be countered. And that's where I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how lifestyle can help. And but I can pro- see you want to ask a question. I'm twitching, Dave. I'm twisting, twitching. Thanks, you <laughs> too. Uh, Presto, so, so you're saying that the lining, so how I understand the lining is it's like, it's literally like the layer of kind of mucus that goes around the, you know, the womb. And prostaglandins yes. are part of that lining. And then when they, yes. when, when your period happens, pain happens because of that. Yes. So prostaglandins get released because as the lining breaks down, it's not a layer of mucus. It's, a, it's actually a, a lining a physical, of cells. Okay. cells yes and so it builds up based on the hormones the estrogen uh, starts thickening it then progesterone starts building it up and then there is no pregnancy and the body says you know what let's get rid of this and let's start all over again in the eternal hope that there'll be another pregnancy next month so if you think back 100 years or 150 years most women would die by 30 35 40 or they would die in childbirth Okay, so they would start their periods at about age 13 or 14, and they would have their periods, have a period, probably get pregnant, you know, at the age of 14 or 15. If they were lucky to survive it, the the child would be uh, nursed for two, three, four, five years, depending on how long they could nurse, and then they'd get pregnant again. And again, if they were lucky to survive it, they would have had no periods all this time and they would have another baby. And so either they'd be pregnant or lactating, pregnant or lactating, and they would have 10, 15 children if they were lucky to survive. So basically they would have eight or nine or 10 periods in their lifetime. Oh. Nitu continues with. The fact that we are living into our 80s, 90s, into our hundreds is a miracle from hand washing, clean water and vaccinations. That is the, the three main reasons why humans are living that much longer. But now, when because we have one, we don't want to have 10, 15 children. So if we are going to have zero, one, two, three, five children, you're going to have anywhere between 350 to 500 cycles, menstrual cycles or menstrual periods in your lifetime. So you can see why there are, there are so many conditions, anemia, you know, one in five women will have low iron levels because of heavy periods, heavy periods, painful periods, endometriosis, ovarian cysts, ovarian problems, all these come from having lots and lots of periods. You know, that does not mean we start having uh, lots more children, but all I'm saying is that is how we have evolved. So with painful periods, you can have no cause. And so the prostaglandins are being released, these chemical pain producing chemicals. And so lifestyle and diet and exercise and tablets and ginger can make a big difference. And then you have something called secondary dysmenorrhea. So you have the primary dysmenorrhea where there's no pathology, which means there's no medical reason why you're having that pain. And then you have the secondary, which means that you may have fibroids, you may have endometriosis, you may have pelvic inflammatory disease. And you may have had no pain. Um, you may have had some pain as a teenager. Then you had your children, you're fine. And then you hit your mid-30s, 40s, and your periods start becoming more painful. And you develop conditions which are inflammatory conditions like, say, endometriosis or adenomyosis. So your periods become very painful. And the pain may start several days before the onset of the period and then continues through the period. So as a doctor, you have to take all these history very nicely because the moment you take a detailed clinical history and the 
person. That's why I always tell my patients, do your homework before you come. So that because it's quite scary sitting in a doctor's chair, you forget everything. So sometimes writing it all down so that you know if you have previous medical notes, if you have drug allergies, if you've been taking medications, if you've been taking supplements, tell the doctor. And the doctor should give you that time so that they can help be a detective and help you in the right direction. I guess the key here is when are women told to keep an eye on their periods? Are women told it could be the fifth vital sign? Is it common knowledge? I asked my mom, I asked my wife, you know, have they ever heard of their period as their fifth vital sign? No, they hadn't. And when I also ask women kind of in a wider circle around me, had they heard? No, they hadn't also. And based off our first two, first two guests, the wider answer is also no. It's not standard practice to inform women of this. We continue with Dr. Neetu on the concept of tracking your period. Every person, every person who starts menstruating. So if you start men- starting your periods at the age of eight or 10 or 12 or 15, it doesn't matter when you start. You start keeping a record of your cycles every month because you will be shocked you will be shocked every day. I will get at least one patient who thinks it's normal not to have regular periods. It is not normal to miss periods, except if you're right in the first year of starting a period uh, or your um, uh, menstruation or towards the end as you're approaching perimenopause and menopause, or if you, of course, you're pregnant. But generally, and if you're on um, hormonal contraception, you don't need to have periods. But anybody who's not having regular periods, you have to think, could they be having an eating disorder? Are they exercising too much? Do they have this condition of polycystic ovary syndrome? You know, are they pregnant? <laughs> Dr. Nidu affirms what Lisa has to say about periods being the fifth vital sign. So, so the American College of Pediatrics, uh, uh, basically met about 10 years ago and then they reconvened, I think in 2018. And they have designated that period should be designated as the fifth vital sign. Now it is quite scary that we are not checking the the history of periods. We just check to see whether somebody's pregnant or not. Could they be pregnant? Let's do a pregnancy test if they're not pregnant. Otherwise we'll get sued because we're going to operate on somebody who's pregnant and we don't know that they're pregnant. No, periods are so important because if you're missing periods, it could be a sign of uh, mental health issues. It could be a sign of polycystic ovary syndrome. You could be menopausal. You could be pregnant. You could be having uh, eating disorders. You could be exercising too much. So if you have a broken leg and you don't take this history of what your periods are, you are, as a doctor, you're going to miss the entire root cause as to why somebody has come to you with a broken ha- wrist or with a fractured uh, hip, simply because you haven't spent that time understanding that periods are critical, are essential. If you're not on hormonal medication, you need to be having monthly periods between 24 and 35 days. Super important question here is how can women manage painful periods? Yes. So first of all, taking a very detailed history. So you know that you're not really thinking of the more serious conditions because they can also occur at a younger age. So in some situations, I will recommend that my young patient has a pelvic ultrasound scan uh, so that they can we can look for other conditions um, and do simple blood tests, a full blood count, which looks at your iron levels and your iron stores. Those are very important because women often underplay or they don't realize how heavy their periods are and then you suddenly find they've got very low iron levels. So these are very simple tests that your family doctor can do. 
Okay. But if it is just your starting pain on the first day or just the day before, and it lasts for a couple of days, but it stops you from going to school, you're missing school, or when you're in at university, you're not able to focus on the lecture, then that needs some attention. What can one do for oneself? So first of all, let's look at exercise. So the studies for exercise are not very strong, but what studies are available show that if you exercise for at least 45 minutes, three times a week, whatever exercise you choose, whether it's aerobic or strength training or whatever you may do, three times a week or 45 minutes was found in, in many studies to reduce the incidence of period pain. Why does it do that? Remember the prostaglandins I mentioned? Those chemicals get washed away from the system in the bloodstream. So then the, that gets diluted. So when that gets diluted, the pain gets better. Same thing with a hot water bottle or a cold water bottle. What does it do? It washes away these prostaglandins. So again, somebody might use a hot water bottle because it then dilates the blood vessels and washes these prostaglandins away. So you could exercise, you could use a hot water bottle, you could use one of those microwavable bead-like things that you can stick in the microwave and then stick it on your, on your tummy, making sure it's not too hot. Even the hot water bottle shouldn't be too hot. You don't want to get burns. So that is the second thing you can do. You, the next thing that you can do is have uh, a diet that is very rich in plants. Why? Because plants, so fruits, vegetables, beans, chickpeas, green peas, soya, herbs, turmeric, ginger, uh, spices, nuts and seeds, potatoes, sweet potatoes, all these which are part of a whole food plant-based diet are anti-inflammatory. So they wash away these chemicals, these prostaglandins that can cause different actions in different tissues, but in the uterus are causing pain. When you eat foods like this, green leafy vegetables, they dilate the blood vessels the same way they help your heart from having a heart, prevent you from having a heart attack. It's the same thing. Your uterus is having mini heart attacks when it's cramping. So you want to be really eating these colorful, vibrant fruits and vegetables and spices and things that will allow these prostaglandins to die down. Because when you eat inflammatory foods, so when you have vegan uh, cakes and biscuits and, and pizzas or, you know, a steak or sausages or eggs and things like that, they create inflammation. When you have lots of white bread and, you know, white sugar rich foods, they're all fine as occasional treats. So the word, important word there is treats. You know, I love a pizza, a vegan pizza, but it needs to be, if I ate it every day, I think it will show on my skin, on my, you know, you want to eat foods that bring you joy as well as health. So the same thing, a whole food plant-based diet. There are some studies, uh, a study by Dr. Neil Barnard showed that when you do a low fat whole food plant-based diet, then that can even be more beneficial. I am not a great fan of low fat, uh, basically because I think avocado avocados, nuts and seeds and tofu are such healthy foods that asking women who need fat to have good reproductive hormones, I'm not completely, you know, it, those are, that's very individualized. Uh, but he did find in his trial a low fat whole food plant based diet had a very good impact in reducing pain. So what are Dr. Neetu's thought on the contraceptive pill? It's all very well to have opinions, but really the only thing I'm interested in is the science. I'm not interested in, in, in opinions. I don't want people to say, I think the earth is flat, not interested. I want the fact that the earth is round and I know that the earth is round because science has proven that. So it, it's same thing with the hormonal contraceptive pill. I'll tell you a little story if we have a couple of minutes. Oh, so basically, 
<laughs> the hormonal contraceptive pill came out in the 1960s. Uh, and it was very interesting because the original research showed had the pill, the estrogen and progesterone, which is produced in our body from, um, you know, uh, cholesterol. Uh, these uh, are the artificial versions of estrogen and progesterone, which when they're in the right combination can be pretty much 99 point whatever percent effective as a hormonal contraceptive. So the research was done without women needing to have periods. And so in the 1960s, at the same time, termination of pregnancy was made legal. And so it was a time when Richard Nixon was running, I think, for his presidentship second time round. And the sanitary towel industry said, whoa, we can't have, first of all, women are going to go around being on the pill, then they're not going to have periods. So we're going to go out of business. Then when they, if they do get pregnant, they can have a termination. That is not good. Women in those days, remember, were second-class citizens, right? So there had to be a lot of appealing to the Pope. And finally, the pill was sanctioned. But it was sanctioned with a monthly break. Now, that makes very little sense because all the contraceptives that have come out since then, the hormonal contraception, whether somebody's on the progesterone-only pill, whether they're on a progesterone uh, coil, they, you're designed to not bleed on it because there's no medical reason to have a withdrawal bleed when you have the right amount of hormones in your body, the estrogen and the progesterone. So really what women should do is if they're going to be on the contraceptive pill, they take it back to back and have a break when they feel like, if they need to. Some women want to have a break every month that's fine others like when you have endometriosis or if you have other conditions or you just for convenience you're an athlete or whatever you take it back to back you may have premenstrual symptoms every time you stop the pill the hormone levels drop and boom that one week is hell and then you're trying to bring those hormones back again so really the pill should be taken back to back without a break now if you take the pill the contraceptive pill the combined contraceptive pill estrogen and progesterone for at least four years or five years you have listen to this very carefully you have your risk of ovarian cancer bowel cancer womb cancer you don't increase the risk you reduce the risk and even when your friend stops them the pill in at the age of 25 that protection is still there lifelong and the longer you take it the more the protection because you know you're not having we won't go into the the science of it but basically that is proven without doubt. What the pill can do, however, is it can increase your risk of breast cancer slightly if you take it for longer than 12 years, although the pill is very safe to take until, the men until you're menopausal. And that risk of breast cancer disappears as soon as you stop the pill. Okay, so there are lots and lots of non-contraceptive benefits. Girls who can't go to school, who have so much of pain and they've done all the lifestyle things or they don't know about the lifestyle things, they will benefit hugely from taking the pill, taking it back to back. They can do their GCSE exams. They can you know, run a marathon. They can win the Olympics, whatever needs to be done. So if you don't want to take it, and it's also very effective contraception, don't forget that an unwanted pregnancy can be a real problem. Not everybody wants to have a termination. Not everybody can have a termination. And also in many cultures, it's not okay to get pregnant when you're not married. Yeah. So it's okay if I'm in a relationship where I'm able to say, you know what, I can do the natural methods. I can, if I get pregnant with a 20% failure rate, it's not the end of the world for me. But for a lot of people, it is the end of the world. You know, we don't have the time, but I can tell you some real horror stories from India, real horror stories that will make you cry. So when people say that the pill is all bad, for me, that's not scientific. 
But what we have learned from Lisa is that the pill can cover up potential underlying issues. Dr. Nita responds with. Sarah, Sarah was asking, uh, Sarah's here beside us, and she was saying that just taking the pill, though, sometimes cover up some of these conditions which might be underneath it and kind of almost like mask the root cause of an issue. Is uh, that, or is that, what is the argument in terms of that? No. When, what do you mean by mask? I mean, you know, it's not as if somebody is going to go around. If you're needing it for contraception, you're taking it for contraception. If you're needing it for, for uh, acne or increased hair growth, you're taking it. Yes, or maybe, the root or, cause. Or maybe it was just that, um, like, say, for example, like, obviously it's used as a contraception, but in some cases, women are having such painful periods that they go on the pill and they're missing out on the vital sign, as in that, the, you know, your, your menstrual cycle is your fifth vital sign. And yes. if you're kind of covering it up with, by taking the pill, which is great, it's wonderful, but it might be missing out on that information because there could be an underlying condition that you might kind of almost No, but you're not going up. on the pill without having had the necessary investigations. Okay, if you're going you. on the pill because you have no problems with your periods, but you just don't want to get pregnant, you can go on the pill. You have nothing else going on in your life, but you cannot afford to get pregnant because you want to get a A star. You want to uh, get the gold medal in university. You want to get, you know, the Beijing Olympics. I don't know whatever you want to do, or you just can't afford to get pregnant. Then, and you have nothing else going on with you. You can be on the pill, but if you're having painful periods, if you're having heavy periods, if you're having acne, if you're missing your periods, you're not supposed to go on the pill without having those things checked out. Yeah, very good. You understand? Gotcha. Thank you. And Excellent then, clarification. And then also coming off the pill within six weeks, people say, oh, it takes months and years to wash it off. It doesn't because the reason you have to take the pill every day, if you don't take the pill every day, you can either get pregnant or you start bleeding. The pill washes out of your system very quickly. So in six weeks of stopping or eight weeks, you can then have your tests. So it all depends on why you're taking something. It's, that is the important thing. When you say covering up, Yes, if you're just blindly going on medications by getting them online without actually doing your due diligence as to why you're needing the pill. What is the reason you're going on the pill? So it seems the problem really lies with the medical professionals as there is a use for the pill, but it should never be given unless the person has ruled out any other potential underlying problems. Judging by what Lisa had to say, it doesn't seem like common practice to check for any underlying conditions first, especially with the stats of endometriosis taking 8 to 12 years on average to, to detect. We continue on asking Dr. Nito on her views on HRT. Okay, it's all down to the individual and looking at the science because it just because something is good for you doesn't mean it's right for you. So, uh, you know, so that's important. But lifestyle, always good for you, always. So it doesn't matter. I have lots of patients who take HRT and lots of patients who don't take HRT. What there is very little discussion is if you're under the age of 40, then you should, as a doctor, be strongly advising your patient to take hormone replacement because that is not acceptable. You have premature ovarian insufficiency. But the range of age between of stopping your periods of menopause is 45 to 55, okay? So then it becomes a choice. And the important thing is to have a proper conversation with the person sitting in front of you. What can I do, doctor, to help my lifestyle? What can I do? Should I, if I want to avoid HRT, but I want HRT, but I also want to avoid things like breast cancer. I want to avoid dementia in the future. All the things that plague women as we get older, right? So that is why you want to start as early as possible. 
when you're a child, when you're in your mother's stomach, when you are a teenager, when you are a woman, young woman, why? Because you want to be bringing in beans into your life. You want to be bringing in legumes into your life, beans, peas, lentils. You must have at least two to four portions of soya. Soya has got plant estrogens, which do not behave like mammalian estrogens. They reduce your breast cancer risk. They reduce hot flushes. They reduce, uh, Dr. Neil Bernard did a beautiful study, a randomized trial showing just a handful of edamame beans, you know, the green beans. They actually cut hot flushes by 84%. If a drug did that, it would be wow. hitting the, the market. Okay. Just half a cup or a handful of edamame beans every single day for 12 weeks cut moderate to severe hot flushes by 84%. Wow. That is astounding. So I'll just give you an example of what I would have. I have is I have a cup of soy milk in my porridge with a couple of tablespoons of flaxseed powder. Flaxseed powder have lignans, which are great for omegas, but also for uh, preventing, reducing risk of breast cancer, but they also have phytoestrogens or plant estrogens that, that soya has. So you want to have a couple of tablespoons. It reduces prostate cancer, you know? So you want to understand reproduction does not get affected for men or women, except positively, positively when you intake soya. So I have a cup of soy milk in the morning. I will have edamame beans in my salad. I'll have, you know, a block of tofu or a tofu stir fry or a tempeh burger. So I tend to have between three to four portions because I'm quite active as a person. Uh, most people will, the important thing is not to eat 30 portions of soya because you don't want to not eat your fruits and your vegetables and your nuts and your seeds and your uh, potatoes and your sweet potatoes and your brown rice and quinoa and things. So you want to have a very colorful, diverse diet, but a cup of soy milk, a small cup of uh, soy yogurt with some, uh, you know, mango and blueberries and dark chocolate drizzled on it, you know, what's not to like. <laughs> so it's just understanding that you can start early with diet. So we know that those who follow a typical Western diet, that means a diet high in animal saturated fat, tend to have 85% more hot flushes compared to those living in Southeast Asian countries, such as Japan and things, because they have a lot more of this unfermented and minimally processed soy products okay so we know that and they eat more a lot of plants so they eat a lot of vegetables green leafy vegetables and things like that so the more you eat your whole grains your legumes your fruits your vegetables uh, when you carry less weight so the heavier you are the more weight you carry the worse are your hot flushes so we know that on a typical Western diet, you tend to be carrying more fat and tend to be carrying more uh, body weight. So you tend to, it forms like a thermoregulator. So it traps all the heat. So you have these hot flushes, which is the commonest menopausal symptom. So diet starts very early. You don't wait. Well, if you haven't heard of it, you know, and somebody is listening and they're 51 or 55, it's never too late to start. But if you're a 20 year old listening to this wonderful podcast by the beautiful twins, then you are going to want to start eating this way earlier. I think the key here is starting the right lifestyle choices as early as possible for both perimenopause, menopause and period issues. Don't leave it until you've already have negative symptoms. Do your best to eat well, move your body, sleep well, rest well, have close relationships and a support group around you from as early as possible. As it's possibly too late to tell you know, a woman in her kind of middle ages to start moving more, eating more, especially if they're going through the menopause and they're feeling unmotivated and really kind of don't want to feel the inspiration of improving their lifestyle if they want to avoid HRT. 
So what kind of foods should one avoid according to Dr. Nidu? What I'm trying to say is that you're trying to stay away from inflammatory foods because same thing in menopause, you want to eat foods that are rich in micronutrient, which are calorie light, but nutrient dense. So you, you know, because a lot of women, as they get older, they find they're carrying more weight. So weight loss is, a, is something that all women want to aspire for as they always complain. And that's because, you know, you start drinking more alcohol, even drinking a single glass of um, um uh, wine or alcohol will increase your breast cancer risk by 12%. And for every three uh, glasses or three units, you increase your breast cancer risk even more, especially if you're menopausal. So there is no health benefits when you are, you know, drinking a lot of alcohol, eating a lot of animal foods, eating a lot of ultra processed foods where they don't resemble the whole plant foods at all. If you don't exercise, you know, you need to eat your mushrooms. You need to be doing all these things so that you can actually get the right um, lifestyle in place, sleep, stress, these things have to be addressed. And yes, if that is not helping you enough, or you're really struggling with a poor quality of life, of course, hormone replacement is definitely. But remember, a lot of people, one in seven of us will get a diagnosis of breast cancer. You can't have hormone replacement therapy with that. So you do want to be able to educate people on all the things they can empower themselves with. And then yes, medicine is always there. You know, there is nothing to be ashamed if you want to take HRT, but some people just don't want to do it. To summarize, Dr. Nidu has nothing against HRT or the pill, as long as the person has no underlying issues and is having and is living a healthy lifestyle. We finish with Dr. Nidu on the benefits or lack of benefits from taking supplements, something also echoed by Dr. Louise. But what I would say to people is be very wary of uh, supplements. You know, there are so many supplements out in the market that are not proven, that can actually cause damage. They can interact with various drugs. So you do have to be aware because I see women, they bring out 10, 15 bottles of various things that they're taking, including soy, isoflavones, which are all, there's nothing natural when it goes into a tablet. Okay, so anybody tells you, oh, but Dr. Bajakal, that is a very natural thing. My doctor prescribed me this HRT or, or prescribed me the supplement instead of HRT because it's very natural. No, even the standardized HRT available in the UK and all over the world is body identical. It is natural, but it is in the form of a tablet. So you have to be aware of that. So when people pop these pills uh, thinking that they're taking something natural, no. Natural comes when you're eating the turmeric root, when you're having the turmeric powder, not when you're having a concoction that has been compressed into a tablet because it's got my name on top of it and I'm selling it to you. So generally speaking, you have to remember, try to move more towards the whole foods. So have the soya, have the olives, have the coconut, if you're going to eat those sort of foods, rather than having something that is compressed or ultra processed uh, into those sort of things that you don't recognize very much. In, and that goes for supplements. There are some supplements, of course, you have to take vitamin D, you know, uh, algae derived omega-3, you have to take vitamin B12. Those are things, especially after the age of 50, you need those. Your body is not making enough of that. Or if you have conditions like polycystic ovary syndrome, you may have to take those. Uh, you should be taking those supplements. I, I, I wow, like what an important topic and a, a topic that's there's a heaviness to it because even me as a man, I feel really self-conscious, vulnerable, exposed, talking about it. Like, what right do I have to talk about this? But I think as a society, we need to start talking about this subject. It's so important. Like, 
even talking to my mom, she she when she was going through menopause, she didn't have feel she could talk to not even her friends or everyone about it. Sorry, mom. Uh, but it, it's something we need to gather around our women more and support them to be healthier. Even recently, we did a an afternoons session um, on female centered leadership or feminine principles of leadership, and it was phenomenal. And I learned so much and just how how skewed the whole thing is towards men. But one of the the obvious basic takeaways that I heard that that at least stood with me was like. Even with with every uh, menstruation cycle, all the women on our team should be encouraged on their, the first day of their their menstruation cycle when they're feeling a bit nauseous, they're feeling a bit weak, when they they need to rest, they should be encouraged to take the day off, and you know maybe they work at another time. But just we need to respect these basic fu- fundamental biological differences between males and female um, anatomy. Anyway. Okay, there seems to be no solid conclusion. The best we can get to is when it comes to menopause, perimenopause, and negative period symptoms. You know, is obviously start start early and have a healthy lifestyle to prevent these negative symptoms from coming. You know, obviously, eat a predominantly plant-based diet, exercise, sleep well, have good relationships and a support group around you that encourage and support these healthy lifestyle practices. Then if these these kind of negative symptoms persist, Ensure you kept record of your periods and crossed off any underlying potential issues with your doctor before taking things like the pill or HRT. And again, I'm not trying to be prescriptive here. I'm just kind of echoing what these experts have suggested. Aside from this, I still question the studies, as both Dr. Louise and Lisa commented on the lack of proper studies in this area. In the wellness world, there's a lot of talk at the moment on the benefits of breath work, intermittent fasting, functional mushrooms, psychedelics, and certain types of movements and nutrition. But with so little studies done on women and with hormones changes clearly having a huge effect on health, what should a woman do when it comes to these things? Should they follow these trends and try them like men do? Or could this have the opposite effect on women when it does to men? Loads of questions here and no one answer. How does this resonate with you? What do you feel about this? What do you think? We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. If you have any, please write to podcast at thehappypair.ie. Please, we genuinely would love to hear your feedback. A massive shout out to the wonderful Sarah Fawcett and her soon-to-be-born child, Mush, for producing, writing, directing, and doing so much in this podcast, which we adore. Um, hope you found lots of value in this. Uh, thanks for listening. Wishing you a wonderful day, moment. I watched a great movie last night, and just, just to share one random little bit, my take-home from that movie last night was like, Life is about the little things. It's not these big moments and these big upstrokes in your life like that are so exciting. It's about appreciating the little things. So if you've lasted this long in this podcast, here's a little practice for you today. See if you can notice any of those little things. Like even just walking down, you see a flower, or the way the light reflected in this, or like chatting with someone. Those little moments. The more we can savor those little moments, the more we can appreciate life as a whole and the miracle that is this existence that we get to be a part of anyway excuse my philosophical ramblings but uh wishing you a great day great day filled with these magical little moments and thanks for listening bye 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 bye